Hello, welcome to our podcast, Global.Science. I'm Lev Hordisky. I'm Fabia Battistuzzi. So, Fabia, what did you want to be when you grew up? And by grow up, I mean after your uh, PhD. <laughs> well, I didn't quite think that far ahead. I knew I wanted to get a PhD and I knew I wanted to be in astrobiology. So that's kind of the extent of my life planning. And then as I was getting my PhD, at some point I decided, well, I was told that you kind of need to think you're about your post-PhD life. And, uh, and so I kind of, you know, followed the role models that I had and I went into the academic route. And so now I am a faculty and uh, well, right now I'm an associate dean, but that's a different story. So I am a faculty at heart um, and I will remain a faculty at heart. And so that, that has been my path, a kind of a traditional PhD, postdoc, assistant professor, associate professor kind of, kind of path. But you okay. had a very different route, right, love? Yes, yes, because I finished my PhD right when the Great Recession happened, so there were like no jobs. Um, so I traveled for a while and then uh, I ended up at Arizona State University working on non non-traditional projects related to uh, online and digital education, which at the time was still kind of, this was in 2010, wasn't really in vogue. Online was synonymous with crack. Um, and, and potentially because of our uh, because of the pandemic and the constellations that needed to be made to be made to deal with the pandemic, I think it may have gone back to crap. Uh, so I think we have a lot of uh, work we're going to need to do to improve it. But I always uh, consider myself academic adjacent, um, and that I like to work with academia, but not strictly on that track. Mostly because it had a strong research component to it. That although I enjoyed it. I didn't particularly like it or care for it. And I enjoyed more the process of creating, um, creating and building and testing and seeing what happened. Um, and now it's gone even more non-traditional where I'm just working at various universities. And uh, right now we're recording this in Brazil, which is a difference, a bit, a bit different from where we started the podcast a number of episodes ago, because I was in your house recording this. <laughs> I've been in several yeah, houses so since then. You went from uh, Michigan to Virginia to Brazil, uh, connections with the Virgin Islands. Yeah, you've kind of been all over the place. I always find it amusing that during the pandemic, when most of the world stood still, you kind of hopped across some mul multiple countries. <laughs> uh, it's been a lot, loads of fun with all the uh, border crossings and COVID controls and everything. Um, but I think it's important to, to think about these uh, career tracks because definitely when we were starting off, um, about 10 years ago, it was just dawning on, on a lot of faculty that they were producing more PhDs than there were professor jobs for. And so we started getting um, uh, training in what else can you do with your PhD? And it tended to be like faculty, but at crappier schools. Uh, everyone wanted to go to the R1 school. So, um, so I think now the situation is a little bit better in that there's an acknowledgement that there are many pathways you could take after a PhD and that it doesn't have to be a faculty. And for many people, the faculty position might not necessarily even be the right path because there's a research requirement, there's a teaching requirement, there's a service requirement, and there's a requirement to spend about 200, uh, 200 hours a week uh, doing all of this. So 
Pretty much, yes. But it's also a question of where your passion truly lies, right? Uh, for me, the, the traditional path worked because what I wanted to do was research and teaching. So not, not so much of the service, but you know, the research, research and teaching works for me. The service is something that I have to do and I actually don't mind it that much. And so, so for me, it worked, but there are many of the students that I interact with, they have a stronger interest, for example, in industry. Um, and so they don't particularly care about the, uh, or are interested in the teaching aspect of things. So they do like the research, but they want to do, for example, something that is very, very applied. And so the industry works for them. So the, this realization that there are many different ways of applying the skills that you gain during your graduate school um, is something that I think has finally come into the light and the faculty don't feel offended anymore if a student doesn't want to follow into their footsteps. <laughs> and we are actually happy to help students explore new avenues also because they end up becoming our collaborators. So, so it's a very good thing also for us now. <laughs> and it, it creates a large network that you can uh, draw on that I think helps uh, keep academia from being too insular because I know uh, the idea of connecting to industry or the nonprofit sector or government wasn't really um, a thing when I was in graduate school, maybe the oil industry, because I was in a geology department, but beyond that, it was um, something that wasn't really talked about. And so the idea that you can now apply the skills that you get in graduate school to lots of different places, uh, I think is, is very promising. And like you said, it creates connections that enrich academia in return. Exactly, exactly. And so I think this is some of the things uh, that we're going to discuss with our guest today, uh, Dr. Sanjoy Som. Um, he's a research scientist and the founder of the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. Welcome, Sanjoy. Uh, hello, Fabia. Hello, Lev. Thank you for having me today. So, Sanjoy, tell us a little bit about your uh, path from, you know, PhD or even pre-PhD, because I think like myself, you are an, uh, you, you were an international, uh, you are an international scholar, right? You are across uh, multiple countries. Um, and so, you know, how did you end up in the position that you are in now? How much time do we have? <laughs> it's been an interesting and non-linear journey, which I think is true for um, all of us involved in astrobiology. Um, but I started off not in astrobiology, I started off in aerospace engineering, and I only discovered astrobiology uh, halfway through my master's degree, which was also in aerospace engineering. And I had a little bit of a quarter life crisis um, in deciding like, what do I do? I've just spent six years in engineering school, and now I want to start graduate school all over again in earth science and astrobiology. I must be crazy, and maybe I was, but um, you talked about earlier in our pre-podcast conversation about passion. And I realized that my passion was really thinking about these questions surrounding astrobiology, because not only is it a rigorous science, it also allows asking some of the deeper questions, kind of fundamental questions about life, um, which was very appealing to me. So uh, I swallowed hard and finished a master's degree in aerospace engineering and then started graduate school all over again in uh, Earth and Space Sciences. So I was a certificate in astrobiology. Uh, all that was done at the University of Washington up in Seattle. And it worked out six years later, uh, you know, it's R1 university. I did my research, got my degree. 
And then indeed, um, the identity that the R1 school uh, not imposes, but knows how to provide you as a student is that of a researcher, an R1 researcher. And so in looking at uh, opportunities, um, I ended up doing the traditional, I'm gonna talk about tradition in a, in, a, in, a, in a few seconds, but I went to postdoc route at the NASA Ames Research Center in California. And um, which is amazing. Uh, I had a wonderful time. In fact, I'm still very much involved there because I just met a group of people that I really enjoyed working with. And, uh, and um, I also changed topics in my dissertation for my postdoc. Um, I went more, uh, yeah, so anyways, it, it, it has worked out. Um, but in graduate school, I've always been, I was kind of doing a little bit of public engagement at work. And I really, really enjoyed it. Uh, not much. I went to a handful of schools, handful of exhibits, talked science to, to kids, and I just, I really valued it. Not thinking more about it other than it's something fun to do. And uh, when I, during my postdoc, um, came the questions about, well, who am I? What do I want to be? So again, this self-reflection self about identity and the identity that I had been taught about was being a researcher, but that not, did not resonate completely with me. And there are many things that make up who I am. I have multiple identities, one of which I really discovered when I spent an entire day at an elementary school in California. And I left there with like a breath of fresh air, like the questions the kids asked, the huge eyes, the excitement they had. I realized that public engagement is something that I want to have built into my profession and that is valued as part of my profession. And so came the challenge also in deciding where to go, what to do, because I had made a new community of colleagues at NASA Ames, um, which I really enjoyed. The topic of my thesis was um, really, there was no community around it. It was on uh, paleobarometry. So measuring per air pressure on earth from a very long time ago. And there's not, I, not nobody works on this. And to establish, it was a great dissertation topic, but as a place to do future science, I want to be part of a community. Colleagues who think about the similar topics that I do, which is why I went into hot spring geochemistry, which is what I still do now, just because it was a wonderful community and I found wonderful people to work with. And my mentor, who was my postdoc advisor at Ames is now my colleague. And so um, like you, Lev, I finished my PhD in, in you know, shortly after uh, the Great Depression. And so indeed the uh, amount of positions available was, was trivial. And I had started a nonprofit while in graduate school to promote an idea that I had a few years before, which is that humanity needs a common symbol in exploring space. So it was a nonprofit which kind of promoted that idea. And so after the, as the postdoc was ending, I realized that, well, I've been talking with some friends that we wanted to start our own Institute of Science where public engagement is built into the philosophy of the organization <clears throat> in, at the fabric of the core of the, of the, of the organization. And that's where Blue Marble Space Institute of Science came about. And so in order, but I didn't know anything. I was not trained in business, right? So during my postdoc, I actually went to business school at night to learn the basics of business. Um, and so when the postdoc ended, we incorporated the nonprofit to do business at the federal level and to do business with the federal government, which was a very steep learning curve. 
Um, and now, uh, 10 years later, it, it has worked. Uh, still a nonprofit building a community of international people who have the same passion about communicating their knowledge uh, to the general public. And built into the philosophy of the organization is also training the next generation of scientists. And rather than built into the philosophy, it's built into the mission statement, is what I wanted to say. Training the next generation of scientists is in, built into the mission statement of the company. So something I care deeply about. And I feel very privileged that over the years I've been able to keep my research going, but also spend a lot of time and effort in the nonprofit nonprofit activities in helping the next generation of scientists become first be welcomed into a scientific community, which is important because uh, it's especially when people come from backgrounds where science is not necessarily seen as a valid career path, doing it alone is really hard. So being part of a community is really important. So I hope, I think we provide that community at, at Blue Marble and as well provide opportunities for them to grow as scientists. Um, that's a long answer to your question. But it sounds wonderful. And of course, uh, both Alev and I are familiar with the, with the Institute and uh, you know very big fans of the Institute. And I have so, so many questions that I would like to ask, but I'll let Lev ask the first question and then I'll step in. <laughs> yeah, I think, what I've liked, because uh, I am uh, affiliated with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, and what I find really appealing is that it is a distributed network uh, that really draws from all over the world, that uh, I have an opportunity to work with um, or talk with and interact with scientists and educators. I think I talk with people in, in New Zealand and um, in India, in the US, and uh, when I was uh, recruiting some students last year uh, through, through the uh, Young Scientist Program uh, that Blue Marble runs every year, I had applications from Brazil and from, I think it was uh, Uganda um, or Rwanda, one of those, or maybe both. Um, and I just found it, uh, I found it, um, really heartening to see so many people that are interested in the topic and uh, the, that this was their avenue in. How difficult was it to build that kind of community and that kind of recognition that you could attract students from all over the world? And what impact do you intend for, the, for that kind of collaboration to have long-term? So we were a distributed organization working over the internet before that was cool, right? <laughs> I think after the pandemic, we've all learned to work well on the internet. We have been doing that since day one. Before Zoom was a thing, we were using the tools that existed back then to really build a network of, of internationally minded people. And it goes all back to that initial philosophy of finding a symbol of international unity in space exploration, right? Science is perhaps the best activity that humankind does together. Right? I'm, I have a, um, a small passion for watches and I have a watch which has uh, uh, the, the, the watch face has uh, a celebration of the United States and Russia's the Mir Apollo uh, rendezvous in the 80s, space activities. And, I mean, even today, like you see the, the, the conflict that's at the political level between Russia and the United States, and yet we work collaboratively beautiful with the International Space Station, right? So, so there's something about science that brings people together that is completely erased in the political world. And so um, 
the idea of a common symbol, is, which is, um, this is a podcast, but I'm going to show it to you anyway. It's just the image of the Earth from space, right? That would be beautiful to have the, uh, the astronauts wear when they travel in space. That's kind of the philosophy we, we try to educate our students with as well. And the beauty in humanity lies in its diversity. And so be able, being able to bring together these early career researchers from all over the world to learn how to work together to appreciate the different diversity and thought, be comfortable with their different beliefs. Um, that, that, that is the way forward for humanity there to get away from the mess that we're in. It feels like in the past few years, you know, humanity has gotten more split in that it's suddenly people are afraid of people who don't look like them. They're afraid of that people that don't talk like them or believe the same way they do. But yet that's such a source of beauty and, and you're able to, to admire your own beliefs and, and, and cultures if you have the perspective of learning from the others uh, as well. And so this, this philosophy that we have, I think at Bumarble of bringing people together into a community of international minds and appreciating the fact that we are different um, and celebrating that is, is incredibly rewarding. And to see those, those early career researchers on their first day and they have doubts, they don't know anybody, they, you know, they are not very confident in their science. And three months later, they give a beautiful science presentation you know, in front of all their colleagues. Um, it's, it's just very, very rewarding. And I think, uh, I think pretty much everybody who is in the sciences, or at least I would hope everybody who is in the sciences would agree that uh, sciences allow us to see the world from a, un a unified perspective in a sense, and not the scientists don't argue with each other. We argue all the time, but we argue on very specific topics that is never personal. It, it always ends up being, you know, how do you interpret this data or, you know, what do you think this means? But at the end of the day, our goal is the same. We want to understand us, our planet, our, our galaxy. We just want to understand how things work. And that's, that's a very strong unifying principle, I think. Um, that, is, uh, that is very nice to see that, that you know, Blue Marble managed to put at the very core of its essence. It's, uh, it's, it's, it's reassuring in a sense, hoping that you know, that's eventually the path that all of humanity will take, hopefully. Um, so let me ask you this. The, obviously building uh, such an international network requires skills that, uh, like you mentioned, you, know, you, you went to business school in the evening to learn how to do certain, certain things uh, from a business perspective, but it's also a question of learning how to talk to different audiences. Um, so have you found uh, that graduate school and you know, the path that you have taken um, has helped you in building those skills? Uh, and would you have any, I don't know, any suggestions for anybody who may be interested in building those skills? Because those are skills that are very useful regardless of the path you take, right? Learning how to communicate is, is fundamental. Um, Absolutely. Um, if you don't know how to communicate your knowledge, your knowledge is essentially useless. Yep. So, I mean, that is why through our Young Scientist program, um, we spend a lot of effort in providing workshops and opportunities for our students to learn about communicating effectively. So that's incredibly important. And uh, 
know, I was lucky in a sense that, you know, going from engineering to sciences, I had a, an I would, a in, in how engineers think. And um, because I did a degree in astrobiology, which was essentially an interdisciplinary, transdisciplinary major, um, there's a lot of opportunities to communicate um, science, my particular discipline, the earth sciences, to others um, in astrobiology as well who are not earth scientists. So in, in my graduate career, I had to give a lot of talks in the classes that I took, as I'm sure you both had to do as well. And in those classes, there were astronomers, there were oceanographers, there were chemists, there were you know, engineers. And so how do I communicate the value of my knowledge to those people is something that, you know, you do by practicing, um, practice, practice, practice. So that's how you get to Carnegie Hall, right? And so, um, you know, I always volunteered to give presentations when, when it made sense for me to do so and put myself in uncomfortable situations. Uh, initially, I was intimidated by going to schools and talk about, you know, my science because, you know, it's a different language that you have to use to talk to people who are not experts versus your colleagues. Um, but again, you know, I just went there and I screwed up a few times, used words that nobody understood. But, you know, if people are very open, like, hey, I didn't quite understand this, can you repeat? And I'm like, chase palm, of course, sorry. So I mean, you know, I, now I always took the opportunity to try and talk to different audiences. Uh, I continue to do that during my postdoc, uh, given talks in bars, I even talked in museums, and just that forced myself to put myself in situations I would not necessarily be comfortable in. And, um, and it's always a good time. Like, you know, you, you are your worst critic always. <laughs> and so what you think probably was a terrible talk was actually not a bad one. People enjoyed it. So uh, in terms of advice, I would just say practice as much as you can. If you have the opportunity to, to give a talk in class, you know, give it. Um, being in school and giving a talk is the best place to do that because you will constantly get feedback. Uh, and the, uh, the repercussions of saying something stupid <laughs> are, are, are minor because you're there to learn. Right? Yep. And I think this uh, touches on a, on a topic that we had discussed uh, before is uh, the importance of making sure um, that students understand, students and faculty alike, uh, understand that it's, it's, it's okay to be uncomfortable. It's good to be uncomfortable because the moment you are uncomfortable, it means you are learning something new. Um, if you stay in your comfort zone, sure, you'll do fine, but you don't really grow much. Um, has, you know, a, a, I guess a well-rounded scientist and a well-rounded person. And so it's, uh, the uncertainties are a good thing. <laughs> yeah, the greatest successes come from having the freedom to fail, right? Yep. And pick yourself up and keep going. So, yep, yep. Yeah. So what's uh, what's the your favorite thing that you've done with Blue Marble so far? Because it, it's an interesting organization in that you have a lot of members that join it, and some of them work on research, some of them work on education, some of them work on both. But you also have initiatives that they can develop under your umbrella and then potentially spin off if they want. And then you have initiatives that the institute itself develops. So what's been uh, your favorite one or the one that has caught your interest the most? <laughs> That's a tough question. They're, they're all very inspiring. Um, but perhaps the, if I had to choose a favorite, it would be the Young Scientist program that we host. And last summer, we had over 100 students from 26 different countries working at an Institute online for the summer. Um, the energy they brought to the organization was phenomenal. 
as I mentioned, it was extremely rewarding to, to see them grow and interact with each other in ways that I could not have predicted. And those are the future leaders of, of our world. And so, you know, if they can learn from an early age to interact with people who are different than them, then we're in good shape. And so I really hope that we can scale the program, but it's very difficult in this resource limited world of a nonprofit. And so we're doing the best we can with what we have. Um, but you know, the world, the word is spreading. We did our first young scientists program in 2014, I think, where we had one student. <laughs> and in 2021, we had over 100. So, um, but it was very, it's, it's a lot of work on, on the staff to manage such a large program. So um, the realities of COVID have made it such that um, we are more resource limited than we were. And so we have to unfortunately scale the program in a way to maintain, scale back in the program in order to maintain its quality. But uh, that's only temporary. Um, you know, as the world opens up, hopefully business opportunities will open up again and we can start uh, scaling up the program. Um, the other that's, initiatives, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. That, that's still a pretty good growth curve that you have from 2014 to 2021, from one to 100, that's pretty yeah. good. <laughs> that's the beauty of the internet though. Um, you can bring a lot of people together quickly. You, know, you don't have to travel. Uh, it's also a program that's part-time because uh, we are very much aware that for a lot of people around the world, uh, doing science is a luxury and because it's an unpaid internship, um, again, because we're resource limited, um, we make it part-time such that people can have their jobs, can support their families, while at the same time still take part uh, with their, their internship opportunity. It's also neat that uh, during the program, you have the resident scientists or the affiliated scientists uh, with the Institute to host those students, uh, because I know for me, it was neat that you provided a central program on science communication and ethics, um, but then the actual, re so they had a curriculum they needed to do, but the research project they were working on, it was whatever the advisor who took them on wanted them to work on. And I think that that's a really neat mix where you provide this core ske uh, skeleton uh, on which a lot of, on which both the students and the scientists involved can build what they want on top of that skeleton. Thank you. Yeah. So as I mentioned in the, when we first started the conversation, is this question about identity, right? Where the universities teach you a single identity, that being a researcher. But we all have different interests. We all have different passions that drive us. Um, there are multiple identities that one can be as a scientist, not necessarily a researcher. So by providing these uh, these uh, extra opportunities for the students to learn. So they have workshops in storytelling, they have workshops in social media, they have workshops on effective communication and science policy um, and ethics and society, you know, that hopefully helps them find an identity about themselves where they connect the most. Like, are they really interested in public engagement? Are they really interested in science policy? Are they, you know, there's also, also a workshop on like Unix fundamentals, right? Something <laughs> you can't escape as a scientist. You know, I should get any, my students to take that <laughs> workshop. <laughs> yeah, how do you dive into a computer and make it do what it's supposed to do, right? Um, maybe that's really interesting to you. So we kind of provide these different workshops, not only because 21st century scientists need to do more than just research, right? There's a social obligation that comes from being a scientist because a lot of the research is paid for by taxpayers, at least in the United States. So there's a sense of responsibility of giving back. But you can give back in multiple ways, right? You can give back to your colleagues, you can 
give back to policymakers, you can give back to journalists, you can give back via blog, you can give back in so many different ways. Um, but people don't necessarily know or find it intimidating to take that first step. So by providing those workshops, um, hopefully kind of break the ice a little bit, and allow discovery, self-discovery, I guess. I wish I had made that effort in my younger years, really seek to understand who I was, what I wanted, rather than kind of following the path as in front of me, you know, get your degrees, get a postdoc, and get a job, you know. Just really take the time to reflect. Maybe it requires a bit of maturity to do that, but I think it can be taught, right? Um, how to think about oneself from different parts that make up who you are. Yep, but it can definitely, I agree with you that it can definitely be taught and it's something that is really, badly needed because at least in the US, uh, many, if not most of the um, curricula that students go through are, you know, we are in 2022 now and we still teach the way we taught in the 1980s or the 1990s. The content may have changed a bit, but the structure is still the same and the world is different now. And so we need a different way of, uh, shaping our young minds so that they yeah. become more connected to many different aspects of the world and not just one one or two. Actually, um, I wrote a paper about that uh, um, where I find that the curriculum in schools teaches you to be a great individual, right? You're taught STEM, you're taught arts, you're taught all these things that help you, you know, gain knowledge to function in society, almost. I think what is lacking also is like, how do you handle emotions? something yeah. that you learn in life through experience, but it's also something that can be taught, right? I think yeah. all of us have fallen on our faces so many times because of our inability to process complex emotions when we were you know, younger. Um, but it's, again, handling emotions is something that can be taught, and I wish that was the case. What I wish also schools did more of an effort on, um, and I understand the restrictions of public education, don't get me wrong, um, teachers are, are heroes uh, in their work, but I want to emphasize that providing perhaps some effort in building students who are aware that they are global citizens. Um, mm -hmm. It would be of value as well, not just gaining knowledge for the sake of functioning in the world, but operating among other people. Um, so that's where I think uh, the, 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 the earth from space, um, I keep coming back to that, what started the nonprofit and what guides kind of my education paradigm um, is, is, is a wonderful way to teach that ability to function in a, in, a, in a global society because it allows you to see yourself from a different perspective and a perspective that's neutral that we can share with all other humans. At least it's a conversation starter. Yep. I think that's an excellent note uh, to uh, end on. And so uh, if people want to learn more about Blue Marble, where can they go? BlueMarble.space. <laughs> Bluemarble.space. That was bmsis.org. That's the Institute of Science. Ah, okay. BMSIS is the research arm of Blue Marble Space, the organization. Got it. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for your time. It was great chatting with you. It was a pleasure. Thank you for having me, Fabian. It's great to see you again. Thank you, Sanjoy. So, lab. Our usual final question, what did you learn? I think what I learned that was most interesting to me, and I've been thinking about this for the last few minutes since it was mentioned, was the idea of science identities. Because when you think about science, 
there's a core identity kind of associated with it, which is that you are a researcher in a lab coat um, doing some esoteric stuff and are disconnected from reality and maybe a little bit crazy. Um, but I like the idea of developing science identities, which is something that I think is not done very well in any graduate program I'm aware of. There's, there's very much that researcher identity, but there's, uh, going back to how we started this podcast, um, the identity that um, you could be a science educator or a science journalist and have a very strong background in science or, or like a lobbyist or someone working with the government. Because uh, typically, I know this was the case a long time ago, um, and I, I think it's changed a bit, but it hasn't quite gotten to the, it hasn't quite gotten to the point of you can go down a science degree program and not end up a researcher. But I know that um, the word on the street when I was uh, going to school was that, you know, Carl Sagan wasn't like a good scientist and, and he was just, he, because he was an educator, he spent all his time doing educating. So he wasn't doing research. So he wasn't really like a good scientist. But the, I, I like the idea that that is okay. You can have a strong identity in science, but not do research. And I think we are, especially in the last 10 to 20 years, where the, uh, the fact that scientists did such a bad job communicating the work that we do, and now we've got all the pseudoscience and alternate realities and alternate truths and alternate facts, has really driven home the point that, yes, if you, you can have, it is important to have these non-research science identities. Uh, so I think that was my favorite thing that came up. And, and I like that Sanjoy is moving in that direction and training students to think in those terms. Uh, but I think it's something that should be um, incorporated more into a lot of other um, uh, formal degree programs that are offered. How about you? To be fair, obviously we, when we talk about our experiences, uh, we are talking about our experiences that now are, you know, 15 years ago. So a lot has changed in 15 years. What I think hasn't quite happened yet is uh, this change becoming common knowledge in the general public. Because I think there are a lot of programs now that are trying to combine the sciences with the humanities, the sciences with the arts, the sciences with the business, you know, trying to um, enrich uh, a science identity so that uh, a scientist becomes more than just a researcher. Um, but in the general uh, mind of the public, I think there is still the scientist is the scientist, the businessman is the businessman, and the artist is the artist. That connection hasn't quite happened yet because programs like the ones by Blue Marble are still relatively new. And you know the, the young minds haven't quite made the switch yet uh, because they haven't been trained like that yet. Um, but I think it's, it, it's going to be really exciting to see, uh, you know, time, 10 years, I think, it's just going to be a very, very different world for than the one we we were trained in. And it's exciting. Yeah, and we could put a plug in for ourselves that our generation is the one that's making those changes because you yourself are also uh, pioneering a program at your university that uh, integrates like biology with business. Is that right? Yep, yep. We're doing the business of science and we're trying to get funding to start that particular 
that particular uh, area so that students get trained and you know when they're done with their phd they can open and start a, a biotech company because they have the background and so they can actually uh do that as part of their of their graduate program so so we're i, I think a lot of people are trying to change things obviously it takes a, usually it's a generational change that needs to happen so the younger minds will you know be be the promoters of this but I think uh, you know every every one of us that has been involved, especially in an inter interdisciplinary science, knows the importance of not seeing ourselves as one thing, but has multiple things. And I always found it curious because you know everybody talks about work-life balance, like if we have two identities, right? We have our family identity, our personal identity, and our work identity. Well, what is so different compared to that than having multiple work identities? It's the same concept. We are we are complex individuals. <laughs> yeah, and I think that's something a lot of people forget. I, I never understood um, how people kind of gravitate towards one identity and say, I am this, because I always saw myself as a complex individual that has lots of different intersecting identities. And uh, I, I like that a, a lot of uh, the training that, that we're working on now is uh, helping students realize that and develop those skills, because I think it's the only way we're going to solve some of these problems that are, by their very nature, incredibly complex. Yep, I agree. All right. All right. I think this is a good note to end our podcast. As always, uh, thank you for listening. Thank you to again to our speaker, Sanjoy. And... Uh, well, we will see you at our next episode. Today's music is Cosmic Glow by Pixabay from pixabay.com. You can learn more about the Blue Marble Space organization at bluemarblespace.org. You can learn more about the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science, including its Young Scientist program, at www.bmsis.org. Global.Science is produced by Science Voices, a U.S.-based nonprofit organization that is affiliated with the Blue Marble Space Institute of Science. To learn more about the programs that Science Voices develops, please visit www.sciencevoices.org.